Welcome to another episode of the Misadventures of an Inspired Woman podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Marsha Caton. Marsha is a geneticist, a native of Trinidad and Tobago. She began her career in the biomedical sciences as a research assistant at the City College of New York City of CUNY. She earned her master's and PhD in molecular genetics from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And her professional interests include highlighting the importance of clinical research in discovering cures for debilitating diseases, particularly for patients with cancer. She's also very passionate about exposing girls to the biological sciences at an early age. Marsha is also a wife and a mother of three children. Welcome, Marsha. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. How are you? I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> Girl, I am busy as always. I I work from home, thank the Lord, because I don't know what I would be doing if I had to get out in those streets yeah. running around every day to and from work. But I have been well. Thank you for asking. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. I've also been working from home. Uh, I've been really grateful for it. It's sort of opened new avenues and ways of doing things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's good. It's hard in New York because we don't have a whole lot of space. <laughs> and, you know, if you're going outside, you got to suit up with your mask and everything like that. But I think I've adjusted and that, you know, when you adjust to stuff, you think it's a good thing. But I don't know how good it is adjusting to this particular thing. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I guess you just have to say thank God for the ability to adjust and you can readjust when you don't have to. But yes, it's kind of crazy when you're becoming conditioned to functioning in a way that is really very abnormal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just not being able to socialize, not being able to have your freedom just to explore the world or, you know, to visit family and around holidays. That is highly abnormal, but I think we're almost conditioned to do that now, but hopefully one day the world will reopen. <laughs> The good thing, though, is that, you know, it was really hard when everything shut down. I I do my brunches. I do all these things Mm -hmm. and couldn't do that. But the good thing is I was able to move it online Mm -hmm. and people like you were able to attend. And when I say people like you, like you're all the way in Texas. (laughs) Girl in Texas out here. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that's the interesting thing about the pandemic. Right. I think it's allowed us to really. Um, be creative and for a lot of business people reach a wider audience. I was reading um, somebody's Instagram post where he was supposed to do a tour around the country. Kev on stage. He's hilarious. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. watching the way I watch him. I watch him for entertainment, but I study what he's doing. Yes. Yes. Right. He's quite phenomenal. And he posted that, you know, when COVID hit, it was like, oh, man, I can't do my tour. Right. What's going to happen? Well, I just shifted online. And he remarked that he surpassed what he could have done going from city to city um, by doing it online, reaching a much wider audience. And I think a lot of um, businesses have seen that. And, you know, in my line of work, 
our company has realized considerable savings mm-hmm. because things that they thought had to be done in person and they were flying people all over the country, all over the world. Um, it's now forcing them to realign what they deem as necessary travel. So from the entrepreneur all the way up to the Fortune 500 company, I think people are seeing um, a different way of approaching work and life as as we know it. Yeah. And I want to get into what you do and things like that. We'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually, because when I first met you, um, you were like, well, I'm a geneticist. I was like, who? How? Like, I was just fascinated. I, and I, I think I told you, I was like, we have to talk about this. Like, <laughs> how does a girl from Trinidad um, migrate to the U.S. at well, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? 13. Mm-hmm. Migrate to the U.S. at 13. I came at 12. I, I know that was a difficult transition for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you go from one environment to the next and ultimately end up becoming a Ph.D. in genetics? So let's start. Let's start. I know that's a big, long question. That let's is a start long question. With that, that Trinidad to New York transition. Right. Um, I guess I'll, I, I'm kind of a bottom line up front first. So I guess I'll say that because of my family, um, it really didn't seem like a big change. Okay. And that might sound odd and I'm filtering it even as I'm seeing it. I'm like, is that really true? And really it was. Um, like many of us, my mom had come about a year or so ahead to kind of pave the way and then my siblings and I um, came along. But before my mom, my aunts had been here. One of my aunts had been here for probably 30 years by the time my mom decided to make the move. And so she was very instrumental in helping my mom and my other aunt get settled. And so by the time we came, we really came to family. Mm -hmm. So we left family in Trinidad, but we came to more family and my mom and her all of her siblings are very close and so um, even though my cousins were significantly older than I was um, they embraced us and so we kind of came right into a community and they really helped us navigate get situated in school and the whole thing so um, it actually made it fun and and Quite a few of us came together and we grew up really close with each other um, relationally and uh, geographically. We lived close by and we were very close as first cousins and we migrated, we immigrated together and then we lived together when Mm -hmm. we first got here. And um, I think that that is how a girl moving can get a solid foundation because of the support of family. And I think that's a story of a lot of immigrants um, or some, right? That their family rallies around them and that community and everyone looking out for the other one Mm -hmm. um, made a huge difference, right? It was not me, myself and I, and now you're here, you go find your way and let me know how that works out for you. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really a cohesive, 
environment and we had a lot of support and so it really didn't feel like a big transition actually mm-hmm. and i had the pleasure of going being in the same grade with one of my cousins that had mm. just moved here with me okay. and we went to the same school and so i always had a buddy we had family at home i had someone at school and i almost didn't even make that many friends at high school because we were always best cousins mm-hmm. and then we went to school together and she is maybe 6 months older than I am and based on how things are arranged here we ended up in the same grade and then we graduated together so we just kind of journeyed along together so that made it really really easy for us yeah as i as you say that i think i re- i realized what it was is that i'd always been in school with my brother who was 4 years older than me mm-hmm. um and I maybe went through school for like a year or two without him at some point but other than that he always he always had been at school at the same time and that was the first time that he wasn't there. Yeah. That I'm was, sure you felt that. Oh, I felt it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though when it was time to choose a high school, um I refused to choose the high school that he went to because I'd always gone to the same schools as my siblings. So by the time I came into the school, people already knew. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For for better or for worse, they right. already knew who you were, who you belonged to. Right. So yeah. there you know there was there was things about that that was really cool and there were things about that way like, "Well, I just want to be my own person." Right. Um and so by the time I sort of got my footing, I think when it was time for high school, I was like, "No. I'm the the, the only reasoning they had for me to go to that school was that he went to school there." And I was right. like, "No." It's yeah, not gonna work. Like I kind of made my own way. I'm just gonna keep on trucking. I'm gonna right? keep on going. Like that first year was the hard. Like after I got through that, forget it. I could get through anything. You know. Oh, what I mean? Listen. <laughs> and at that point, he was he was gone anyway, and it wasn't the same thing. You know, when you go to school in Trinidad, all the teachers know your family. They know everybody. Here, it's not necessarily yeah. like that. So yeah. it wouldn't have really. I don't think made a difference. But I just put my phone. Like, mm-mm. So anyway, back to you. <laughs> yeah, and um so, you know, wait, what high school did you go to, Marsha? Canarsie High School. Okay. What was Canarsie like? I know it's it's one of those schools that um they've stepped in and broken it down into smaller schools. Oh, they have. I have been out of touch of what's happened. Um when when I was there, when we were there, um it was um not terribly diverse um but also not like you're the only black child in the class or the school or the grade but it was probably maybe 60-40 in terms of diversity 60 majority 40 minority or could be even a little bit less mm. um and you know it was fine um nothing really happened at school mm-hmm. while i was there there were no incidents no shootings no stabbings it was just yeah i mean, I mean school has changed that's the school has and it's yeah. changed again now that everybody's at home yeah. so we why you have any metal detectors we we didn't you know at the time there were other schools that had the reputation mm-hmm. of being rough right and canarsie was not one of them and so you know i went there and i um you know the the education system in trinidad is so different than 
what it is here. And um, so it was really kind of easy for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Truth be told. Without even trying. No, no effort. It yeah. was really easy. Yeah. It was really easy. But one thing that I would say knowing the difference between how you're educated there versus here is that when I came here, I felt like the playing field was leveled and I was able to start from a point where I could now have a sense of empowerment about my education mm-hmm. because it was so easy for me. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had this really rigorous foundation, but going to school there I was very conscious of how hard I had to work, even as a 10 or 11 year old girl. I I was already conscious that this was difficult. Yeah. And then you. Right. And not because I was not a bright student, but the way that things are taught there. I remember being 11 years old and having a chemistry book this thick. Let me not exaggerate. Right. But at least that thick and learning about chemistry at 11 and having to memorize all of Louis Pasteur's experiments and having to be able to produce that on exams at 11. You know what's funny? (laughs) My brother just went through like a professional exam and he scored the highest. Right. He said, I haven't come first in anything since like primary school because (laughs) that's the setup is who's going to come first in tests, right? It's not about did you pass the test? It's about where you rank according to your peers. Right. Yes. And so I had this incredibly thick book. It was a blue book. I can still see it in my mind's eye. And the book was not at 11 or 10 even because I did common entrance at 10. Mm. Right. And so I went to St. Francois College. So I was in high school at 10, right? Oh, so you smart, smart. Marcia, stop. Uh-uh, uh-uh, wait, hold on. Nope, nope, no. Nope. Let's pause. Let's not do this. Let us not do this. We're not going to do this. You're not going to do this to people just because they don't know. No, 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 no. Because I'm pretty sure I took common interest like around 11 or 12. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I went to Woodbrook Secondary. Okay. And that does not rank. It's a good school. If you yeah. got in there, you did good. Yeah. But that does not rank as high as the St. Francois of, 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 the, of the thing, right? <laughs> Granted, I was like, I want to go to an all-girls school. Why did you put that down? Um, <laughs> Take that off. Take that off. And then again, my brother was already at Woodbrook and I had an older brother that had already gone there. So I was yeah. like, I'm good. Let's go there. You know what I mean? Right. But no. So to, so to get into the so first of all, to have taken that exam a year or two before meant that you were you had accelerated earlier. And yeah. then I skipped, I skipped standard to a second grade. Yes. Right. OK, so you were skipped. And then not only did you pass, because that's the thing with common entrance then, 
And they call it something different now. Yeah. It's this exam that you took. Basically, your life is set out for you at the age of 12. Because if you fail, that's it for you. There's no, there was almost nowhere for you to go. It's crazy. Except to maybe take it again or whatever the case might be. There was almost nowhere for you to go. And if you didn't get a secondary school education, there was no job in your future. There was nothing. So for you to have taken this exam and passed it by the age of 10, and scored high enough to go to St. Francois Girls. Yeah. Marsha. But, but you know, it's funny you say that because at the time it's like, it's not a bishop's, it's not a holy name, right? Mm. So it was still like a little bit of a second tier in the <laughs> upper echelon. It, and I tell people all the time, and the Trinities don't come for me, but Trinidad is a very classist. Yes. Um, oh, they can't come society. for you. They cannot they, come for you. They, they can't come for me. They're not ready for me. But I'm telling you, it's so classist. So even at 10, I was conscious because bishops was my first choice Mm -hmm. and they placed me in St. Francois which was fine I didn't retake it I was like my brother on the other hand he went to St. Mary's College so but you know you have these life altering things that you take and do as a 10 year old child and so when I came here it was easy for me but yet it was revolutionary for my future mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I was no longer memorizing what Louis Pasteur did in 1865 in order to regurgitate that on the test as if that would ever do anything for me in life or mm-hmm. the, the life to come, mm-hmm. right? I was now, I had the solid foundation and I wouldn't trade that for the world. And my children were born in Texas, but I tell them every two days that you are Trinidadian. I need you to understand it. You are Trini and you need to embrace it. You need to eat the food. You need to understand the language. You need to know all the colloquialism, all of it. You must understand and embrace all of it, right? So I wouldn't trade that heritage for the world, not because it's the best thing ever, but because I felt like it really put me in a one-up position when I changed environments. Mm -hmm. Now, had I stayed there, I don't know what I would have ended up doing, but um, I felt that that foundation set me up well, but I am very grateful for my education in the U.S. because it allowed me the room to breathe and to think about what I really wanted to do rather than being on this treadmill of, I got to come first in the class. I got to take all the exams. I got to study for this. I got to do, you were always on a performance treadmill mm-hmm. and that can be exhausting. Yeah, so um, that transition was really pivotal for me because I came to class, to, to, to school here, and I remember in 11th grade, my English teacher, Mrs. Weeks, said, I still remember her name, she said, oh, you're a very good writer. You should enter this contest for writing and enter that contest for writing. And I was like, oh, am I? Well, thanks, Mrs. Weeks. I had not really stopped to ever pay attention, right? <laughs> and then then somebody, I got exposure to different things. And I think at the end of this, a long answer, but I think if I would say, how does a girl from Trinidad who came here end up being a uh, 
research scientist with a PhD in genetics, I think it boils down to exposure. And I am a huge proponent of exposure. I expose my children to everything because I think exposure gives you options. You, When you're exposed to something, you do not have to do it all, but at least you know that it's an opportunity and an option for you. And I think that's what really redirected the course of my career was that exposure. So in high school, they encouraged me to take AP chemistry. And I went into AP chemistry and I was like, yeah, I still don't like this. I did, th- I started this before, I still don't like this. And they said, okay, well maybe try AP biology. And I was like, oh, all right, let's try the AP biology then. And that became an interest that I pursued. And so I graduated high school and I was undeclared as a major. I was gonna do law. I never really wanted to be a physician, so that was never really on the forefront of my mind. But I was thinking of computer science, law, I couldn't make up my mind. And so I went to, I I had a few scholarships, but I decided to stay home and I went to Pace University at at the downtown um, Manhattan campus. And I, in my second semester there, I was doing biology 102, I guess. And the teacher walks up to me, the professor walks up to me, Dr. Cyrus Baki. He walks up and he says, wow, you're really good at this. And I was like, good at what? <laughs> right? I really, it was like, we were in the lab. And he's like, you're really good at this. And I was like, good at what? And he was like, this lab stuff, you know, working in the lab. I was like, oh, I am? because I had never really done it. So there was no basis of comparison. I was just doing my classwork. And he invited me to come and get a tour of his lab. Again, exposure. And I had never met anyone who had done scientific research, right? So up until this point, this was not a picture in my mind, Mm -hmm. right? So he said, come to my lab. I had no forethought of what I was going to see, what I was going to learn, but I'm naturally curious. So I was like, sure, I'll come to your lab. And so I go there and he has his lab, but I'd never been in an environment like that. And he has postdoctoral students and other associate professors, and they're researching African sleeping sickness. And I'm just kind of looking around and he's like, well, why don't you start coming and learning about my research? And I was like, Okay, I can come and I can learn about your research. And that was the beginning of my career. I didn't know it then, but that exposure really just opened up uh, a realm that I did not know existed Mm -hmm. up until that point. And so... Again, I guess that's my answer, right? Family support and exposure. And that's how I ended up, once I did that, I went on to City College where I graduated from. And um, I was talking at the old Brooklyn Tabernacle one day in 290 Flatbush. And someone said, so what do you what do you want to do? You're in college. What do you want to do? And I said, oh, I want to be a research scientist, I think. And somebody's neck swept, snapped around. And she said, you want to be a research scientist? I am a research scientist. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh. 
And so, and, and she and I are still friends today. And so then she invited me to her lab at City College and exposed me to her research. And she was in her doctoral studies at that time. And so then I began to see someone and others who were doing something that interested me that I had prior exposure to. But now at, at Pace, I didn't even think about doing a PhD. But now I'm looking at someone from my church who was doing her PhD in, in research. And she was doing some genetic research, cancer genetics. And so that's really how I ended up. So I went into her lab and I did as now I'm an undergraduate student in the senior years, you know, sophomore, um, maybe junior, senior years. And so now I'm working alongside a woman who's doing her PhD and she's training me and giving me that exposure to what it really means to have a project and do experiments and, and do all of that. And so I learned a tremendous amount um, of um, technique from her and science from her. And so from there, I just applied to do to a PhD program. Okay. So... You're you're on this path, you're on this journey, ultimately up to where you're at today. Are there any points or anything that stands out to you as any points where things felt a little bit difficult or a little bit confusing or where you had to question, like, what am I doing? What's happening? Where you've had to sort of adjust yourself or your focus? In terms of what I wanted to do and what I was interested in, not so much. Well, <laughs> there's a whole story of that kind of at the end. But in in mid-course, in my undergraduate uh, studies, when I started at Pace, I got a scholarship to go to Pace and it covered most of my tuition. But it did, it did probably didn't cover maybe 10. I think I had a 90% scholarship. But I saw where my mom was working more to pay the tuition, the fees, the books, the all of that. And so um, I was seeing her less and less because she was working more to make sure that I had everything. And then my sister was also in college at the time. So she was really trying to keep us. So then I decided to, even though it was just 10% tuition that we had to pay out of pocket, um, it was very hard for her. And so I decided to take a semester off and regroup um, and think about what, how I could go to school for less money for, you know, in a less expensive way. Um, because while at Pace, there were times where I had to hold off on buying textbooks because the textbook was what it seemed like an astronomical amount of money, uh, maybe like $175 at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with all the other responsibilities that my mom had, I would sometimes not even really tell her that I needed the book because I knew that she was working hard to provide other things. And so I would use an outdated edition of the book in the library. Mm-hmm. And so instead of buying the book, I spent hours in the library where everybody else kind of went home. I was studying in the library because I didn't have a book to go home to. So I used the prior edition of the library and I took notes and I photocopied and I did all these things to compensate for the 
financial strain that it would bring to buy this textbook for $175, which would just be one of them, right? Mm -hmm. I usually took about 16 credits to 18 credits at a time. So it's just one. So I would sometimes pick the one that I knew I could get in the library and then I would go there and study more and, and instead of going home and all these types of things. And so I decided to course correct to make things a little bit easier. Um, so that was one time where I definitely um, hit pause. I probably took maybe a year off. I don't even remember how long it was. And I um, went to SUNY, which was considerably cheaper. And I was able to do a minor in education. And that paid my entire tuition to go to, to, go to City College. And so that took at least that took all tuition off of my mom's plate and so then you know and I was already working as a research assistant in the lab so I had a small stipend so I was able to buy books so it did get you know a little it was a challenge um, taking that approach where I wouldn't ask my mom for the money because I didn't want it to have to work more um, it, it, it was a challenge but I just kind of did what I had to do Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find that that way of thinking and sort of course correcting and coming up with a new strategy, do you find that that helps you today? Oh, yes. Um, you know, it's really part of who I am. Um, if you know me well, you will know that if I have decided to do something that there are very few things that could probably make me change my mind or deter me from doing it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think I've always been that way. My mom tells me that I have always been that way. So, you know, that's a whole lesson in child rearing, right? Because sometimes if our children are very determined, we regard it as them being stubborn. Mm -hmm. And we try to work that out of them by whatever means we might choose. (laughs) We know which way the West Indians choose, right? We won't talk about that, right? But you try to get that out of them. Don't be stubborn. Don't be, Mm -hmm. you know, so fixed on what you want to do. You got to, but my mom tells me that I was always so determined. And after a while, when I got to about six, she just decided to just let me be. Not that I can do what I want, but that my determination was not something that she was going to try to um, redirect into a different channel sort, sort, sort of thing. And so she allowed me to grow with that determination. And really, it served me well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Um, So as you sort of think about all that you've accomplished, I know sometimes, I know you probably don't sit there and think about it, but you've accomplished a lot. Um, (laughs) As you sit there and, and, and think about it, as we sit here and think about it and talk about it, what, what next? What? (laughs) What's next? Um, You know, I am, my brain is, my my brain is always in a few different directions. So my mom was always, and my dad, they were very entrepreneurial. And so I have that bent that I, I lean into, um, where I have side gigs going on the side. Um, I like my plate full. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But I do have a limit. So if you ask me to do a long term thing right now, the answer will probably unequivocally be no, I'm not adding any new things. Right. Because, you know, you, you I have to also manage my household, my children, and they need me. And um, in a way, because I feel like I did so much before I had them. I am very mindful to give them what they need now because I've kind of already gotten the crux of what I need, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get on a quest for more at their mm-hmm. expense. So mm-hmm. so that's kind of, so I'm very mindful, even though I do like my plate full, I do have to leave that space for my children and to be able to pour into them what somebody poured into me. And I don't think that I can do that effectively chasing every chasing after the wind, right? I can't mm-hmm. go in too many directions because I need to be really focused on pouring into them. So that's one thing. But I do leave avenues of expression for myself because that's also very important for me to feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So I recently went back to school, but what? it's online. Why? That's what my sister said, because I have an insatiable thirst for learning. So what you doing now, Marcia? Um, I do it now. You know, the reason. What is it like? What's the what is it that you're doing? I'm doing a master's in political oncology. So it it makes sense. It makes sense. Yes. I'm not even going to. Yeah. The reason why I do it, the reason why I why I can do it is because I have come to realize about myself that and it's taken it's just about now that I've really realized it prior to now I have thought that I had good exposure which I did I thought that I was blessed which I am I thought that you know I was determined which I was but I never ascribed any real value to my capacity to do things Mm -hmm. and I think I have a tremendous capacity to do things, things that I ought to do. Not everything, of course. So, and by capacity, I mean, I can expand to do things, but I also mean that I've realized that a lot of things that might be really, really challenging for others sort of come easily for me. Mm -hmm. And... To, to God's glory and to um, tremendous support from my family. So I realize that I can do a master's with three children, a full-time job, a husband, and a side gig. Mm-hmm. Because I know that in my line of work that I can assimilate information very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I can write a paper for this master's degree program pretty easily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So I I do it and it's really not been disruptive at all. That's good. That's good. I love that. I love that you see where there's you still have room and, and you filled it. Can you, as we look towards um, wrapping up, can you talk about Thrive 2G? Oh, right. Yeah, so that is um, the side gig. Yeah, so, 
<laughs> so Thrive 2G um, really came to me. So my business partner approached me. Um, our children go to the same school and um, she is a black woman physician and she said, you know, I am looking to start up a wellness conference for women physicians of color and would you be interested? And that's a long story, but at the time I did not quite realize what she was asking me, what I was interested in. Um, but it's soon became clear and you know I have had ministry to women as part of my fabric for a long time you know growing up in BT and even prior to BT I I was in girls ministry and um, youth choir and I was a youth leader and all of these things and um you know, you kind of get in that vein of uh, ministering to women. So I saw it as a great opportunity to really pour into women who give a lot. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of having a conference around strengthening strengthening women physicians of color who um, give so much and are sometimes stressed and need support and find that they don't have a community was something that was that really resonated with me and I really almost did not have to think about it because I I could understand the need for it and it really aligned with um, where I think my ministry gifting lies and 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 that's really the way that I um decide what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Does it align with my core values and my gifting and my interest? And my interest usually leads towards coaching people, developing people. And so, um, yeah, that's how I became involved in Thrive 2G. How many years have you all been having the conference now? So last year was our second year. So mm-hmm. this year will be our third year. We're still trying to figure out what that's going to look like. We usually yeah. have it in the fall. So we have a little bit of time to see if things change. Yeah. Yes, which I'm not too hopeful. So your first year was in person. Yes. Last year, you had to pivot quickly to yes. get it online. Um, and then now we're waiting to see what happens, kind of like the rest of us, all waiting to see. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So we're going to shift to the lightning round now. Um, <laughs> the lightning round is just random questions. Don't look scared, Marsha. <laughs> Like, okay. No, I'm telling myself, okay, Marsha, you know, you always have a story. You got to keep it short. This is the lightning round. Lightning <laughs> round. Okay. First question. What is your favorite color? Green. Okay. Um, your favorite dessert? I would say ice cream, but I can't eat ice cream anymore because of my allergies. So I don't even know what it is anymore. Maybe, uh, maybe like pistachios are like one of my favorite things to eat, unfortunately, since I've given up ice cream. <laughs> Can you have gelato? No. Okay. All right. That's unfortunate. I don't eat ice cream (laughs) anymore, but gelato is my jam. Um, Your celebrity crush? Maybe Boris Cujo. Okay. Um, Guilty pleasure? Maybe binge watching some TV shows. (laughs) You got three kids. That's real guilty. When you got three kids. You could just sit there and binge. I love it. Um, last question. Who plays Marsha in the story of her life? 
And what genre is it? Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a musical? Is it a stage play? I would say a stage play with complete with band, (laughs) horns, the whole thing. The woman that plays Marsha would be a vibrant, carefree, almost throw caution to the wind woman, the woman who can face anything. She'll give anything a try. (laughs) (laughs) I am a wild woman at heart. So yeah, she can't be she can't be too stuffy. She gotta be able to let her hair down, throw waist here and there, all of that. I love it. I love it. Basha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, to share your journey with us. I just feel like there's so many lessons in there that people can learn. And, you know, our theme this season is dope Black women doing dope Black women things. And I think... I think you're dope. I think what you're doing is dope. Like, you're, you're, you're this research scientists in genetics and you're expanding into clinical oncology and you're lifting up um, physician, women physicians of color through Thrive 2G. I think all of those things are dope. And so we celebrate you and are so happy that you're a part of our community. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, Let me know how I can help you in any way. If you want me to come back, I always have something to say. You (laughs) are your words. Marsha, how do they find Thrive2G or you on social media or the internet? Yeah, I am kind of incognito on social media, but Thrive2G, they can find. (laughs) Hashtag Thrive2G everywhere. And it's Thrive, the number two, and then G. G, yes. Hashtag Thrive2G on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Yes, we're all there. Um, And they'll see my face peeking out. And we have Thrive2G.com. Awesome, awesome. Hey, Inspired Person, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm so excited to continue to bring these stories of dope Black women to you this season. We have about three more episodes left, so hang on there, and there'll be some more stories coming your way. You can leave me a review wherever you listen to the podcast, as well as be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Keisha. That's D-R underscore K-E-I-S-H-A. Check out my blog and my website at www.drkeisha.nyc. And as always, be intentional.